You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh preaches from chapter 14 in our continued series through the book of Romans. As we listen, our prayer is that we will be both encouraged and challenged today. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 14? Romans 14 is our text for today. As you are turning there, let me just remind us, we have covered a lot of ground in this incredible letter. There have been many, many moments that we have broached topics. We have covered subjects that have left even the first century readers and us today with our eyes a little bit wider, maybe the eyebrows a little bit raised. Maybe it's the, the depravity section of humanity in Romans chapter 1. Maybe, maybe it's the, this idea of, of, of justification and sanctification, and, and we get into those real fun words to study like propitiation and expiation. Or maybe for you, it, w- it was more of Romans 8. That's where a lot of people gravitate in this beautiful letter. The, the idea that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And no condemnation literally means none. Like, like there's nothing because of what Christ has done. There's nothing in your past that condemns you. Nothing today that condemns you and nothing in the future that will ever condemn you because of what Christ has done. That's a beautiful thing. Maybe for you, it was more of God's sovereignty when we got to Romans chapter 9. Maybe it was the minutia of chapters 10 and 11. Maybe, maybe it's when we get to, to chapter 12 and we tar- start talking about living sacrificially. But I guarantee you, there is no section in all of this letter that left the first century believers eyes wide and eyebrows raised as this section we're going to cover today. Just, just as a reminder of, of where we are here, okay? So, so we just need to be, be reminded of, of who we're speaking to and build the tension a little bit, okay? So this church gathered in Rome is, is really consisting of two groups, right? So, so you have the Jewish followers of Christ and you have the Gentile followers of Christ. Anybody that's not Jewish would be considered Gentile, okay? So across this room today, I would assume the majority of us are Gentile believers. So understand where we fit in this category, okay? So in these two groups, you have a church that is devoted to God. They love God. Their vertical love between them and God is good. It's the horizontal love, their love for one another, that's in question throughout this entire letter. It's the reason for Paul's even writing it. And to, to again, help us understand of where we even get this letter from. There's a, there's a moment in history where the church is gathered in Rome, and there's an, a Roman emperor before Nero, before that real bad guy. There was still not a good guy. His name was Claudius. Claudius was a man, uh, an emperor, who expels the Jews out of Rome. The reason being is because they were sharing Christ in the synagogue and they're fighting. So what we have here is we have a a five-year sentence where where these Jews are heading out. They're gone. They're they're dispersed. They're in exile. And you have the Gentile believers who are left, and the church is essentially their church. And for five years, they live by Gentile customs. They, they worship God. They, they follow Christ. They live on mission. The five-year exile is over, and the Jews, the Jewish followers of Christ, start coming back into Rome. 
And that's where the tension comes back because you have these believers who have loved Jesus just as much as the Gentile believers, and they're struggling now because their church, and please look at these air quotes, their church looks different than it did before. And so they come in, and the worship style is different, and the, the teaching is different, and the, the way that they order the service is different. The things that they observe, and the things that they think is important are, are, are incredibly different than it was just five years ago, and now there's a tension at play. Remember, they all, both groups, all love God, but they're having trouble loving each other. So Paul writes a letter to take the fractured church and unite it. And what he's going to say essentially through all of these chapters, all 16 chapters, Paul is going to say the only thing that can fix the brokenness in the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church family, that isn't just true in the first century, that's true today. And so as we journey into this text today, we need to understand that, that what we are, we are feeling the tension of is very Jewish customs and very Gentile customs that aren't playing nice together, Right? So they're having a hard time dealing with one another. So, so even if we go back, just a couple of, of chapters, we go back to chapter 12, Paul makes a statement. And here, here was the statement. You can write this down. You, you may have it highlighted from the time before. It's a really good verse to have, okay? Romans chapter 12, verse 9. This is what it says. Paul says, let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. No doubt when these people, Jews and Gentiles, receive that portion of the letter and they hear that read out loud, there's hearty amens across the board. From the Jewish followers of Christ and the Gentile followers of Christ, there is hearty amens. Yes, let your love be genuine. Amen. Abhor what is evil. Amen. Hold fast to what is good. Amen. But then the question comes into view, what is love? What's evil? What's good? Each group had their own definition of those things, and they weren't necessarily the same thing. And so they would take a scripture, and they would unite each side in that and become more galvanized than they were before. So Paul's going to take everything after that verse in chapter 12, and he's going to begin to build the case for what is love. And he's going to point clearly to Christ being he is the authority and he is the definer of what love is. Well, what is evil? Well, God has clearly said what is evil and it's seen throughout the scriptures. Well, what is good? What should we cling to? Well, he points that out as well. And so when we look at these things, we're, we're trying to wrestle with what, what, what is love and, and, and how, do we, how do we make sure we cling to what God calls us to cling to and stay away from what we are to stay away from? You can almost feel the tension as he goes on, the apostle, and begins to build the case, especially when we get to chapter 13. And he comes right out of the gate, and he says that let every person be subject to the governing authorities. All right, what I just told you about Claudius and the Jews, can you feel the salt in the wound? He goes on to even say, not just because I said so, but he builds this case for God's sovereignty that no leader ever established on the face of the earth has ever been outside of God's sovereign hand. And so for them, they're going to live in a great tension. Those big stressors are going to cause them to do something that we still do today. When life gets really stressful on the outside and we can't control it, we have a tendency in humanity to come to the inside things, the things that are small in nature, and cling to those real tight because it becomes now an issue of control. 
And that's where we find ourselves today in the text. The problem happened in the early church is because they couldn't affect the major things, they started to major on the minor things. And that's the very thing that began to fracture the church in the first century church. It's the very thing that still fractures God's church today. When we lose sight of whose we are, when we lose sight of the mission that has been trusted to us, and we lose sight of the grand narrative of our life, if at any point we get that twisted and we start to think that we are the sovereign, that we are the king, when we start to believe that our mission is God's mission, and we start to think that all the things that we prefer are better than what everybody else prefers, then the church becomes more and more fractured. And so that's where we find ourselves today with a church that has done just that. So if we were going to title this sermon something different and something quippy, it would be something to the effect of the things we shouldn't fight about in church, but we probably still will. That's where we are today. But hopefully we learn really important lessons between this week and next. With all that being said, hopefully your interest is now piqued. Let's go. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. Now, there's a lot here just in this first verse, okay? So probably the first question that comes to your mind is, is who is weak in faith? And, and as we read on, even into the next chapter, chapter 15 in the coming weeks, who's going to be those that Paul considers strong in the faith? So let me explain that a little bit, all right? Generally speaking, as it pertains to this letter and the church at Rome, Paul is calling anyone, anyone that clings to the law, for justification or right standing with God as to be a weaker brother, okay? So that would, that would be the ones who are weaker. I'll explain it more in just a second. And on the other end, Paul is calling anyone who clings to Christ alone for justification and right standing with God the stronger brother. So very generalized here, but the Jewish brothers in, in, this, in this scenario, in view here, Paul is considering them weaker brothers, weaker in faith because of their desire. Here's why. Their desire to cling to the law to make their faith more complete. So they would say, we love Jesus. That's what makes them Christ followers. That was, that, that's what you're going to see brings them into the kingdom. But it is the fact that they say it's Jesus and adherence to the law. It's Jesus and following the customs that we have done since we were children. He would say, that's a weaker theology. That's, that's a weaker faith. But on the other hand, we look at the Gentile believers, he would consider them strong in the faith, and only reason is because the only thing they have to cling to is Christ. They don't have a history to cling to. They don't have customs that they followed as children. They were lost, but now they're found. They were dead, but now they are alive. Paul would say that their faith is strong, at least in this scenario, okay? So one more time, for our own clarity's sake, okay? The strength of our salvation comes from Christ and Christ alone. Our faith is weak if we believe that we have some ability to make Christ or to make our salvation better because of our faithfulness to resolve to do something or to keep something. 
We're strong when we believe Christ alone for salvation. Our faith is weakened when we believe somehow we keep that salvation or gain that salvation or make that salvation even better. It plays out in the scenario that sounds something like this. You know that you are born again. You know that you belong to God, but because of your mistakes and failures, you feel lesser than, and so instead of going back to Christ and throwing yourself at his mercy, you begin to do good deeds to make yourself feel better about your own faith. So now it's not Christ making you feel good, it's your own effort. I don't know if that's the way that you grew up, but that sure is the way I did. And on the good days, it was good. And on the bad days, it was really, really bad. All right, so as we continue on here, Paul's point here is a church divided with Jewish and Gentile believers. Both have faith in Christ. Therefore, they are already welcomed into the family of God. Not only are they, they welcomed uh, by each other, they are commanded not to fight against each other over opinions. Again, there, there's a lot here. They're, they're, they're not commanded to not fight over, uh, so they are commanded not to fight over opinions of preference, as, as we'll soon see. But sound doctrine and truth of the gospel message is something different, okay? Those aren't preferential things. They are established by God for eternity. These things are worthy of contending for or fighting over. We'll talk about those things, but back to the issues of preference, meaning things that we like more than we like others, okay? That causes the fight between the two groups and probably still cause fight today. Look at verse 2. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let the, not the one, who only, uh, the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. All right, so eating was a huge tension point as a preference for the early church. Specifically, meat and vegetables versus vegetables only. Now, you need context here because that sounds strange, Here's the context. Jews took seriously from, from their heritage, from, from their raising, from God's law that was presented to their family over years and years and years. They took seriously the command not to eat meat or drink wine, more to that next week, that was offered to idols. So, so think um, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, you have to remember, this is the moment that Israel is exiled. You have King Nebuchadnezzar who has them, and he's going to turn them into fighting men. And, and the king wants them to have the best meat and the best food and the best wine so they could grow big and strong and fight for them. So Daniel says, no, no, it, it, would, it, would, be, it would violate my conscience. Not that meat or wine were inherently bad, but there was a directive from God's word that said, you will not eat wine and meat that is submitted to idols, even if it's left over and they feed it to you. Do not eat it. Abstain from it. So that is Daniel's stance here. All right, so we have this, this law, truly, but to a very specific situation that now what happens in the church in the first century is they begin to now apply it as law from God for all people. More to that. So when the Jews 
in the Jewish followers of, of Christ were in metropolitan areas like Rome. They didn't even want to chance defiling themselves in any way because they had no idea that if the meat that they were going to buy at the market or the meat that was presented to them or the wine that they would buy or the wine that they would drink at a gathering was ever offered to idols. So they would just say, no, I'm not going to eat and I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to do that. So they abstained. That's not the problem. Matter of fact, great on them. Good. That's wonderful. The problem came when the Jewish Christ followers would look down on the Gentile Christ followers from, for not abstaining the same way. And they even went to the extreme of calling their conversion into question. All right, just so again, we are clear. We are speaking historically. We are speaking to this, this moment that happens in all of Scripture. But you have something that, that for generations became more of a practice that my parents did and grandparents did and great-grandparents did. And so I want to I be true to that because I want to be true to them so we can all be united together. But God didn't necessarily say you can never have meat and you can never have wine here. And so what would happen is you had this group that this goes on for so long, they forget the heart of the law and they begin to apply it in general. So you have these Gentiles who have no frame of reference for that. What they know is they are lost, but Christ made them found. They are dead, but Christ made them alive. And now what they hear is they have freedom in Christ to live for his glory and to proclaim his kingdom. And that's what they're doing. And so now you have a group in the church against another group in the church who is going to say, well, I don't even know if you love Jesus because you won't keep my customs. You see where the tension comes? Can you see why the church in the early uh, first century is fractured here? And so they begin to fight. Paul says, this is not something to fight over. It's not essential to the faith. If the Jewish followers of Christ feel better for not eating, great, don't eat the meat. In the same way, if the Gentile followers of Christ have no issue with meat and want to eat it, great, let them eat it. Here, Paul's argument as to why this isn't a primary issue or an issue worth fighting over comes at the end of verse 3. Look at those final words. Because God has already, what? Welcome them. So to keep or not keep doesn't gain love or cause God to push you out. You are not welcomed because of the law that you keep. You are welcomed because of what Christ has done. That's what he's trying to get them to understand here in the first century. This probably brings up a great question, though. All right, so maybe, maybe meat and wine isn't something worth fighting over, but what is? What are the things worth fighting about? If the things that we're talking about today are non-essential, then what is essential? We would consider those things first-order issues or essential issues. And, and it's not a big list, but the, the list is pretty profound, right? So number one is salvation. That's, that's a first-order issue. How someone is saved and how someone remains saved, first order, worth, worth contending over. The deity of Christ, that is an important issue. If Christ is not God, then the whole Christian religion is a farce. And so as we come to this, we understand deity of Christ, first order issue, and crystal clear commandments from God's word, crystal clear. 
Understanding like there aren't that many that are going to say, if you are following Christ, this is going to be what you will and what you won't do. There's a lot of gray area that we look to this and we need context to understand. But those would be primary issues, first order issues, essential issues. But that's not what we're talking about today. But what most church fights are over are not those things. It's the non-essential things that Paul tells us we have no business fighting about. So let's get back to that. And let, let's, sort, let's sort this thing out. Or maybe, let me, let me give you this definition. I think this is important before we go. How would you define, how, how would you be able to land on what is a non-essential issue? All right, so here's a definition that I, I worked up. It's really elementary. Hopefully this helps. If it doesn't, throw it away. If you can disagree on something, but still be right with God in your error, that's a non-essential issue. So for example, salvation. If you believe that you can be saved another way than Jesus Christ, you're not going to be right with God in your wrong answer. That is an essential issue. But if you're trying to sort out what is clean meat and what is unclean meat, and you may on accident eat unclean meat, or you just abstain from clean meat, is that going to cause God from heaven to say, oh no, I don't want you in the kingdom anymore? No. So you can have two groups that, that have totally different viewpoints on this thing, but still be totally right with God because their right standing is based on Christ and not their own doing. Those would be non-essential things. That, that's kind of how we would get there. So if you want to apply that metric to whatever it is you were trying to figure out, is this primary or is this secondary? Is this something of importance worth fighting over? Or if it's not, does your being right cause you to, to, to continue in salvation and your wrong kick you out? Or could you still be right with God even in your wrong understanding of whatever that thing is? That would be how we elementarily, on a, on a level, understand that. All right, so back to the issue. You're eating meat or you're not eating meat does not and will not make God love you any more or any less than he already does. God is not up in heaven saying, yep, Braddy sure does love a medium rare ribeye. I knew he was my boy from the beginning. Although I think that's a sign of godliness. I don't know how to prove that. I think it's there somewhere in the scriptures. I just got to find it. But we must remember that our being welcomed by God has only happened because of what Christ has done. That's a first order and essential issue. It has nothing to do with what we've done, can do, or will do. That being settled, look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he will stand or fall. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So, so church, if we can understand this, this is big. We may be brothers and sisters together, but we individually belong to Christ. So I am not your servant and you are not my servant. You belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. We as born again people belong to Christ. Yes, we are called to serve one another. To encourage one another, we are called to keep watch over one another's lives and call each other to repentance when we wander away. But we are not called to pass judgment on one another. Christ is our master. We are his servants. We will give an account to him and he will hold us accountable. Now, 
food isn't the only thing that caused a riff in the first church. Look at verse 5 and following. But one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. Now, holy days or ceremonial uh, uh, holy days were a hot-button issue for the church at Rome. The Sabbath day may be in view here, but more than likely it has more to do with the Jewish calendared holy days. Think Day of Atonement with me, okay? So on our calendar, that's usually in the fall, September, October. For, for the Jewish people, that would be the day that they would remember and even still practice that the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and, and they would make uh, an atoning sacrifice on behalf of all the people. So that would be the day that they would hold in such high reverence because if that day went well, they're, they're atoned for. If that day didn't go well, they're not atoned for. You could see why that's an important day for Jewish followers. But what about Gentile followers? For them, that, that day really doesn't hold that much weight because what they would say is, guys, every day is atonement day. Christ has atoned for my sin now and forever. And so there's a tension that lives here between the Jewish and the Gentile followers. And so they're struggling to figure out who is more right. Paul would say, those arguments don't matter. That's not where you need to get hung up. Paul's wisdom here, he says this, whatever day, whatever days you think is most holy, go ahead and resolve that in your mind. The main thing is the why behind your belief and observation of those days. Here are two questions that will help you navigate these important but not fight-worthy issues. Does my doing this thing or does my observing this day glorify God or does it glorify me? That's question one. Question two, does my doing this thing point to God or point to me? All right, so, so glory is this idea of, of collect, it's, uh, glory is a weighted term, like, like it, it speaks of weight or grandeur. Like is it going to make God greater or is it going to make you greater in the eyes of men? Or is it going to put the spotlight on you or on the spotlight on God? That, that's Paul's point here. He goes, whatever you're going to do, you need to make sure that he's supreme and king and the spotlight's on him. So if you observing that day does that, praise God. If you not observing that day does that, then praise God. But if any of those things get twisted, then we're wrong. You can observe something holy and do it for the wrong reason and be absolutely wrong in it. Think about today. Why are you here? And I think if we, if we follow this metric and we begin to ask the questions, so, so are we here because we know God is worthy and we want to give him all the glory, then that's a beautiful reason for God's people to gather. But if the reason we come to church is because we are looking for people to gain a better view of us, and maybe if they see me at Broadmoor, if they see me walking into a church or, or dressed up like I've been to church, then they'll see me better. One of those things is not like the other. So why are you here? Well, I think that would be an easier question. For many people that come to church, they would say, well, I'm here because the first one, Josh, I love him and I want to serve him and I want him to receive all the glory, right? Okay, well, that's probably easy for the one hour on Sunday. You can now apply those same questions to everything else about your life. Why do you do what you do? 
Why do you have the job that you have? Why do you live the life that you live? Why do you drive the car that you drive? Why do you live in the neighborhood that you live in? Why do you, all the things, you just fill in the blank. And this is gonna expose our soul in ways that they are being exposed. Can you feel the tension just yet? Because the tension should be this. I know because of Christ, I have been welcomed into the family of God. But I also know because of my sin nature that's still in me, I got a lot of sanctifying to go. And there's a lot of times if we think and we look on the outside and say, well, I go to church and I give a tithe and I try to live a good life, I should be on the right path. But we begin to ask these questions and it's a little more revealing. Why do we do what we do? Is it to bring God the most glory? Is is it to make his name great? Is it that at the end of our life, people will say their God was awesome? Because that would be the call on the life of the believer. We, we keep going, okay? So, so even if these things aren't fighting-worthy things, fighting, fighting out here in the public, it is certainly worthy of contending for in your heart. So, so Paul's point is now going to become, maybe the Jews and Gentiles don't need to war over these things, but maybe you do in your own heart. Maybe you need to start calling into question why you do things and, and why you, you hold things as important or why you aren't going to do these things and why you will do these things. Paul goes on to give a clearer answer. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So, so in Christ, we, we are dead to self. Again, none, none of us lives for himself, none of us dies for himself. So, so the what I want and what I like and what I desire most is no longer our focus. Dead people don't desire things. They're dead. Paul says it this way to the, to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. It says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So, so he, he goes on to say, Going back to Romans 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We're not our own. We are now and forevermore belonging to Christ. And as we live today, we live for him. And when we die, we die to him. Verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Now, for to this end means the reason Christ died. So that he would be the Lord of living and dead. Those words seem strange. It's a curious statement. Is, is Paul saying that Jesus is Lord of everyone who is alive right now and everyone who has already died? Now, although that's true, he, he is Lord of all. The point that Paul makes here is a little bit more nuanced. What he's saying here is that Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection from the grave has made him Lord over all, all those who are born again and all those who are not yet born again people, because he has all power and authority given to him. So if Christ is the eternal king of glory, who has all power and authority, who is Lord of all, Paul's question in verse 10 why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? 
For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue will confess to God. All right, so we are all individually going to stand before Christ and give an account for every bit of life that we've lived. Christ is the only one qualified to judge. He is the only one with all authority to judge, and he is the only one who has promised that he will come back and do the judging. So why do you, why do we feel the need to judge? What is it that is in us or about us that makes us believe that we have any right to see all, know all, and render a fair and right judgment? Paul asked the question, why do you hate your brother? Now, if we rightly understand judgment and the big reasoning behind this whole dialogue, we would know that we have no business exacting this duty, nor would we ever want to. Judgment definitively says you are born again and you are not born again. That is the ultimate judgment. When Christ comes back and we give an account for our life, he is the one at the end of it all will say, well done, good and faithful servant, come into my kingdom or depart from me, I never knew you. That's what the judge gets to do. So if, if any of us in this room has ever cast judgment on somebody, when we say we are going to judge them just by what we've seen or what we've heard, this is in essence what we are enacting. What in the world is it about us that think we hold that ability? Now, we need to talk about some other things. There's a lot of nuance with this. If you're jumping into the Bible today, or if this is your first sermon, or you haven't heard the rest of Romans, you may hear this verse say, or it sounds like it says, well, you should just live and let live. And in the end, God will sort it all out. There's no need to look at other people's lives. There's no, no need to call into question how other people are living. While true, in the end, God will sort it out. Church family, the scripture is very clear. We are called to be loving to our brothers and sisters. And the most loving thing that we can do, especially if they are believers who are not currently walking the way believers should walk, not in judgment, not in damnation, but speak truth and love to them. Because our hope isn't to tell them you're in the kingdom or you're not. The hope is, hey, brother and sister, because you're in the kingdom, we are called to a different standard. We're called to walk in a different way. So they'll know truth from error. So they can see light in the darkness. So they can repent and continue to follow in their relationship with Christ. But as it pertains to fellow Christ followers, us, it is not our job to take Christ's place as the judge and to render the verdict of eternal condemnation or eternal life. It is our job to encourage, to stir one another up to love and do good works. Verse 12, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. Judgment will come for each and every one of us. So make sure the why behind your religious activities are healthy. Make sure the why behind the entirety of your life is what it should be. 
Remember, the mission is to take the good news of Christ to the whole world. And what we heard last week is time is running out. So as we move into our closing moment and our worship team comes back up and we move into a time of response, church, we need to understand that in Paul's talk here and in his part of this letter, there is an encouragement to understand there is a mission that's been given. We, we talked about it at, re, at Easter, and we talked about it again last week. The mission is to go into all the world and proclaim Christ and advance his kingdom. But if we are so busy fighting each other over things that don't matter, we'll never begin the mission, much less fulfill it. And so, a church this big, no doubt, there are a lot of preferences. But I need us to understand, I need me to understand, our preferences don't matter compared to what God has told us to be true. That's hard, though, when we get to church. Because there's this idea of ownership and membership, and that's right. You, you, we need you. We are all a part of this thing. We are all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, getting to the same destination. But if we're there long enough, and we take our eyes off of this book long enough, and we begin to get comfortable where we are, we begin to think that this place is more about us and what we like than what God has called good and the mission that he's trusted. And so this isn't one of those standing from the rooftops, looking down at all, saying, you need to get better, do better. These words have stung to me this week. Because if you can imagine how you feel, can you imagine how a pastor would feel when they are given charge as the under-shepherd of the church? Christ is the shepherd, we are just his under-shepherds. And there's a part in the tension that we say, well, I want to cling to what God wants as good and right and holy. And there are things about us that, that we are saying, yeah, but I like those too. And when we get those things connected, that's dangerous. But I know that's not just true for preachers. It's true for each and every one of us in our walks with the Lord. It goes a lot to what Mike shared about when God's people went into the promised land. God said, go in, remove everybody. They went in and they removed the people they didn't like. They kept the people they kind of liked. They kept the customs. They said, hey, that's a cool custom. We might keep that. And in the moment, probably nothing wrong with it. But as time went on, the cancer began to grow. And it deeply affected the people of God. And it's still affecting us today. So the questions that I have for some of us, for all of us this morning, but for those who are going to go to life group, I think it would be a great conversation starter. What are the things of preference that you think are things that are essential? And how do you sort them out? That when you gather with God's people, and you may not like how that thing looks or sounds or tastes or, or the experience that you have or Is that stopping you from fulfilling the mission? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've been a part of what God was doing and, and maybe you looked around and said, I don't like the way this goes. I don't like the way that they sing. I don't like the way that that's preached. I don't like the way that these groups are assembled, whether that's here or elsewhere. And instead of joining God on his mission, we sit back and we fold our arms, we take our ball and bat and we go home and say, call me when it changes. 
The enemy is one. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He did all of it right there. It's time, church, to stop fighting like the minor things are the major things. And it's time to major on the major things. So don't look at those that are around. Yeah, we praise God for that. So we can sit in this room and we can say big sweeping things, but the question is going to be, are we going to internalize these things in our heart? Am I going to internalize these things in my heart? And put preference aside and say, God, this is your church. This is your life. This is every breath I have left belongs to you. You choose how to spend it, not me. And I promise you, church, when we do that, a couple things going to happen. Number one, it's going to be awesome. Number two, guarantee you, it's going to be uncomfortable. I've been reading a lot lately about what it means to be a pastor. Seminary, you talk a lot about that. Growing up, pastoring, you learn a lot about that. And so I went back and, and started to reread, sometimes daily, the pastoral epistles. You know, in, in the New Testament, there are general epistles, meaning the, the letters that are written to, to general population, to, to the followers of Christ. And there's three letters that are written to, to pastors. And anybody can read them. But it's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And it's Paul writing to, to Timothy and to Titus and and he's reminding them of things, and he is sharing with them things again that evidently they've had a personal conversation about. And my heart has been hung up with this, and I don't think this is just going to be true for pastors, so this is where I'm inviting you in to the call of ministry. When we major on the majors and we, take in, we, we embark in the mission that God has trusted to us, this is the call in our life. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. And you, always be sober-minded. Don't get caught up in the fight. Endure suffering, because it's going to happen. Do the work of an evangelist, because you have the greatest news on the planet. And fulfill your ministry call, because that's the reason God didn't take you home after he saved you. There's purpose for your life. So church, as we get ready to ungather, to leave, don't major on the minors. Don't get caught up in the fights that don't matter. There's a mission that he's trusted to us, and it's time to go. So we're going to move into a response time. There'll be time for repentance and sorrow, for gladness and joy. We're here for it all. You choose how you're going to respond to what you've heard today. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. I ask, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit that you continue to stir our hearts and open our eyes. Help us to see the things that are worth fighting over and understand that there aren't that many, but they are really, really important. And yet too often we never find ourselves engaged in those battles and we engage ourselves instead on the lesser things that we have no business fighting over. The things that stop us, the things that deter us from fulfilling the commission that's been trusted to us. So Lord, I pray now that you would, in your grace, expose to us the things that we are holding dearly to 
that aren't the main thing. So if it's right for us to do them, God, help us do them for your glory. But if it's not, then let us have the freedom there too. Jesus, we love you with all that we are, and we pray that that is true. So help our response. Whatever needs to happen, prove that. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray, and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?